Welcome to the Space of Justice. I'm your host, Michael Bett Second. My pronouns are he, him, his. And I'm joined today by senior leadership of Duke's Next Gen Living and Learning 2.0 Committee, comprised of Vice Provost, Vice President of Student Affairs, Mary Pat McMahon, Vice Provost of Undergraduate Education, Gary Bennett, and lastly, Dean of Students, Associate Vice President of Student Affairs, and Associate Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education, John Blackshear. This committee, charged by the Board of Trustees and President Price with the mandate to answer the question, how will we build a joyful and intentional four-year residential experience that promotes growth, meaningful inclusion, and health, and that is distinctly Duke? These are the three people with Linda Zhang, who unfortunately could not join us today, are at the helm of solving this question. Before we get started, can you all introduce yourselves a little bit, tell us a little about who you are and your relationship to Duke and Durham, actually, and then, you know, some of your areas of interest, your pronouns, and maybe just for the audience's sake, a fun fact about yourself that you find interesting. Mary Pat, can you start us off? Sure thing. Um, so yeah, I'm Mary Pat McMahon. I use she pronouns. I am in my second year in academic year at Duke as Vice President Vice Provost of Student Affairs. I'm a Durham resident. I'm learning my way around Durham, but like my way around Duke, it has taken me a little bit extra because the pandemic has curtailed movements, right? Right. And, you know, I'm sorry, I'm trying to remember the other pieces. I'm, trying, I'm thinking about the fun fact part. <laughs> um, <laughs> Go jump on it. Go for it. Okay. I go through these phases of time where I really want everybody to pay attention to something that I find interesting. And I don't want to take everybody through that, you know, through the various things Poor John and Gary are a part of this process on a regular basis. Um, and I'll just, I'll, I'm going to, but I'm not going to do it. <laughs> um, I, so let me think about that for a second. Fun. Yeah. Um, I just have to say that I, I started reading a book in college 22 years ago, and I finished it in the pandemic. I'm very proud of myself. That's my fun fact. Congratulations. Thank That's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are we going to get the name of the said book by chance? Uh, yeah, it's Anna Karenina. My college friends and I had a virtual book club this summer um, where we had all taken the Russian novel. None of us, actually one person, I think, had finished it. Um, and we basically went back and finished the book and talked about it. And we got more out of it, I think, than we would have at 22. For sure. For sure. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Well, hi, I'm Gary Bennett, Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education. I'm also a professor at Duke. Um, I have been at Duke as a professor for about 11 years. Um, Before that, I was at the Harvard School of Public Health. I study digital therapeutics, uh, often uh, in medically vulnerable populations. Uh, I'm a Duke alum and married to a Duke alum. And I am, so it's, it's exciting and wonderful and totally unexpected to be back. It's particularly, I'm, you know, it's particularly strange for me to be serving in this role. This is not something I ever imagined doing, but love doing it and love doing it even more with, uh, with John and Mary Pat. My, I have two kids and, um, and I live in Raleigh. And so I, uh, it's kind of a different sort of, uh, experience uh, in my, my right. sort of life. Right personal life's a little different than my work life context, but, but I feel like I'm a Durham guy and love the place. Um, and I'm really excited to be doing mm-hmm. the work that we're going to talk about today. Um, my fun fact is that I now know more about Anna Karenina than anyone who hasn't. Read the book. <laughs> and, uh, I don't know what Mary Pat's talking about, where she says she stopped talking about it all the time because it's amazing the degree to which Anna Karenina relates to just about everything that we do at Duke. Wow. My fun fact is, uh, 
is that I really, all I want to do in life, um, and at some point I'm going to give it all up and uh, be a backup singer. And um, okay. it's all I want to do. And, and increasingly, I think I may find a job as a backup singer to John Blackshear, given mm-hmm. that oh, okay. I would sort of find myself standing behind him with a microphone in various parts of the world. <laughs> so, so if not, if, if not John Blackshear, who on, well, pre pre COVID who on tour were you trying to, to, you know, go that's, be their backup singer? That's a great question. You know, honestly, it's Bruno Mars. And I, okay. it's, a little, it's a little strange, but like the, the, his, he's got a cool, cool vibe for his backup singers. That's a, that's pretty cool. I like the way uh, they dance around. I can't quite dance like his backup singers do, but I, I could try. I was about to say, I mean, if you saw all the 24 karat magic videos that you could learn those steps, you yeah, know, I, I, yeah, so that's generally my look outside of work. <laughs> you know? So I, th- I think I can get there. I like it. I like it. Um, and just, just so that we have it, what are your pronouns? He, him. Thank you for joining us today. Hey, how you doing? I'm John Blackshear. So I am uh, a clinical psychologist by training and by practice, I guess. Um, I do practice uh, in the field some. A lot of uh, folks know me for the work that I do in the forensic world. Uh, I am often hired as an expert uh, witness for capital cases around the country and uh, sometimes in other countries. So I've been here at Duke for quite a long time. Uh, I used to live in downtown Raleigh. I used to love the fact that I lived in one city and worked in the other. Gave me an opportunity (laughs) to know both communities well because I I did spend a lot of time outside of campus in in Durham during that time. And then, of course, spent a lot of time in and around Raleigh. And, you know, for me, uh, having lived in a place like Atlanta, I don't see the two communities as that far apart as, as sometimes they are viewed. But um, so I look at the triangle typically as a whole. And uh, but I really love Durham and my family and I were going to move here just so that my wife and I could be closer to the younger children during the day. And um, I had an opportunity to become a faculty in residence and change the game and just change everything about my understanding of Duke, my understanding of Durham. And it has been uh, probably one of the the, uh, most illuminating experiences of the 19 years that I've been here at the university. A fun fact about me, so, I mean, there's some things people know, right, that I'm a huge Prince fan, that, uh, you know, that I'm a drummer, and that uh, I'm pretty sure I had a local hit in uh, Kunshan after singing karaoke with uh, Gary and Mary Pat. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. (laughs) I I did a cover of Lou Rawls's... You'll never find a better, uh, you know. Oh, Lord, have mercy. It was wonderful. But I think uh, a fun fact that a lot of people probably, especially students, I think, have started uh, noticing the first years as they walk by where I'm working is that I I keep uh, several pairs of headphones around and uh, different types of different means of experiencing music at really, really high quality uh, because Mm. I use music several times a day to sort of reorient me and kind of settle me back down. And I love just about any type of music, but most students find it that I am a huge Ty Dolla Sign fan. So there you go. Okay. Okay. Yes. All right. I was not expecting that to be what oh. you said. <laughs> <laughs> Ty Dolla Sign is great. I don't care what nobody says. No. <laughs> I mean, you opened with Prince, so that's why I was just like, where are we going? <laughs> There you go. Press the tie dollar sign. How, you know, there it is. I think you have been proven somewhere in the middle of all that. Oh, for sure. For sure. <laughs> That'll be the name of your uh, autobiography. <laughs> Prince the <to> Diamond. <laughs> Done. That'll be a brilliant book. <laughs> 
Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Very grateful to have all three of you here. Let's kind of jump into some of the meat and potatoes. The best place for us to start is kind of how you all came to this particular work. I think that oftentimes, you know, your work finds you because of your specific skill sets. And and I know, Gary, you alluded to, I wasn't expecting to be doing this, but I'm very grateful to be doing this. So given that, you know, how did you come to the work that you're doing with NextGen Living and Learning? And then how do you feel that you are enacting change at Duke? And how or why is that work necessary? Gary, can you start us off? Sure. You know, it's it's funny because this is um, when I entered into this role, the, I didn't know at the time that the Board of Trustees was beginning to take a look at this issue of Duke's living and learning experience. And I was surprised to be invited to co-chair a task force for the Duke Board of Trustees to look into the sort of next generation of our, our living and, and learning. You know, I care about the issue deeply as a as a faculty member, right? Like I'm, I've, I have long believed, and this is not an original thought, but it's been my, my personal experience that there's just something very special that happens in the interactions between faculty and students. And particularly when those interactions happen in the areas in which students live, there's, there's just, right. that's, you know, part of the magic of what happens in places like Duke. My wife, when I met my wife, she was an RA at Duke. And so I got yeah. to see through her experience, just the impact that she had on the lives of her residents, many of whom are, are still friends of hers and ours. And there's just, you know, so even though I wasn't an expert in the area and, and certainly hadn't studied the area, it, it's, it really spoke to me. And in some ways, like for me, it's, it's particularly exciting when you don't have a lot of knowledge in a space to do the work that we then embarked upon because I, I was able to kind of be a student of the topic for a year. And so we put together a, a task force in the board of trustees, so a multi-stakeholder task force of faculty and students and staff and alums and board members. And we spent a year doing a very deep dive both into Duke's residential experience, but also benchmarking Duke's experience against that of other institutions with a real emphasis on trying to understand how we compared against what we thought of as best performing living and learning arrangements elsewhere. And it was just absolutely fascinating. That committee, that task force was led by a really phenomenal trustee, Betsy Holden, former mm. CEO and you know, mm. current McKinsey consultant. And so the it was brilliant to watch her approach these questions from her particular lens. And I brought the lens of a as a faculty member, as an administrator, and, and we just spent a year wrestling with what do mm. we want Duke's experience to be? What is it now? Where are the gaps? How do we make changes that will help to improve the experience for all of our students, make this a more equitable experience, and also one that leads to the kinds of, it's really consistent with the kind of values that we have as a community. And so then on the back end, as it, as it, as it is, the back end, you know, you make a really big report and you make a series of recommendations. And then, you know, I've been in this position many times in my life when, you know, you do a deep dive, you put together a series of recommendations and you wonder whether there will be interest in the broader community among those who are decision makers in, in actually implementing these recommendations. And we are really fortunate that I think as an alum, I, I feel very fortunate that we have the team that we currently have, because basically, you know, what we heard from uh, our president provost was, you know, let's, let's move forward now. And, I, and I'll, I'll stop my, my soliloquy here, but I will say that like right around the time that we were finishing this report, um, we were also doing the search for the next vice president, vice provost of student affairs. 
And mm. it was mm. just extraordinary, you know, extraordinarily fortuitous that we were able to find someone who, like Mary Pat, who comes with the kind of skills that she has, but also just has the kind of relational skills and just the kind of spirit that she has. This is the nicest thing I'm going to say about her. <laughs> and, uh, and so it was just, you know, I'm, we're sitting here with the report and interviewing these folks and, you know, I'm imagining what it may be like if we get the chance to implement these things. And we're just, we're just really fortunate to, to have been able to convince her to move her family down to Durham to do this work. That's fantastic. Mary Pat, just for the record, that was recorded. So if you just want to nice play that part. back and forth on loop, yeah, that nice yeah. part. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> I may need that. <laughs> well, Mary Pat, you know, can you follow up with that? You know, you you come in with a unique perspective. You're a year basically um, behind the strategic task force. The recommendation that they're putting forth, you're kind of coming in and, and seeing what they've put together and you have to pick up the reins. Like, what is that process for you? Yeah, I, I think there's all kinds of pieces that connect to this, this sort of where we're going here at Duke with the work that I've done in other places. There's a through line for me, probably for about 10 or 15 years of work in thinking about this question of how students live and how students learn, where they live, what's changing. Mm -hmm. you know, for example, campus centers and libraries become much more interconnected as far as where people sort of collaborate, connect over ideas, connect with faculty, um, follow up and sort of, you know, if I walk out of the Bryan Center right now, I really enjoy sort of walking past all the benches and just seeing what everybody's do you know people are doing calc people are prepping for job interviews there's group work mm. happening um you know the pandemic's actually brought more of the campus center into a sort of living and learning space um and i've you know i learned in different places that i've worked that the ways that students engage faculty and thought thought partners and ideas when they are comfortable in the space is so transformational, right? If, you know, if it's one thing to be in a formal classroom space where there's a lecture, there's a you know, half right, shell right. and people sort of sit apart and take notes. It's another thing for there to be, you know, like a flipped classroom where students are sort of more engaged right. in the material and sort of less, you know, less in receivership and more in sort of engagement of learning. And then if you move some of those conversations, you think about, you know, somebody comes out of an amazing discussion about, um, you know, we're doing food insecurity symposium on Friday, right? So people come out thinking about right. questions about food insecurity. And then to have that conversation in their own room or their own common space or a place that feels like home, it's just different, right? And then if you can get faculty right. and others to be in those spaces where students just, the questions come up a different way, the sort of, the framing of having it be a question that's, I really want to know the answer and I really am not sure about where this is, mm -hmm. that's more likely to pop up in a home environment than in a, right. I'm, supposed to get the, I'm supposed to get the answer, quote unquote, right. The task force, you know, raises a whole bunch of things and, I, and you know, over time in different places that I've worked, it really does come down to space and sort of where, you know, where one feels comfortable and whose space is it, who controls it, and then where the ideas go from there. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. John, how are you kind of complicating these things as you're watching Gary and Mary Pat kind of work through this? What is it doing for you as you're coming to this work as well? First of all, I was it, it went without question that I was going to accept any role uh, offered to me to participate in this work. You know, I was involved uh, when I was over in, in my previous job uh, with the training of faculty or orientation of faculty when they joined us here at Duke. And one of the questions I would ask during that orientation is if they would recall for the room a significant academic experience that they tie directly to them sitting in the room, being mm -hmm. oriented toward the faculty at Duke. Mm -hmm. And without question, 
they all went back to incredible people who are phenomenal in their content area, but they also had different types of connections with them outside of the content area. Then those connections resulted in things like understanding the world differently, developing uh, a sense of confidence to share their competence, if you will, as they matured into whichever directions they were moving in their lives, and sort of this audacity to be people responsible for the creation of knowledge, right? And so we mm -hmm. sit in this room and almost all of the time, those connections went back to grade school. Right. What was surprising for me, but also kind of confirming what we're doing here is the reason why those connections were able to happen is because you were sort of around those instructors more often and mm -hmm. it provided you more opportunities for contact that really sort of laid foundations for uh, these folks' futures in the room. So the thing that keeps going coming up, and I kept hearing Mary Pat say it over and over, was this word connect, watching folks connect, looking at how they connect, who misses out on connection, why mm. does that happen, how do we encourage greater connection, how do we move barriers from students finding a greater community and connection here, and how do we also move, remove barriers for faculty to move uh, and partner in, with the living space with a greater sense of ease, but also in a way that is rewarded and seen as a value proposition by uh, the institution such that that mm. is considered mm. a meaningful part of the portfolio that they are building also. Moving into the dorm, I thought I knew uh, our students really well. I realized I knew them from the position that I was sitting in. I thought mm. I understand. I understood their developmental needs. I thought I understood their, you know, their desires and their hopes and how they connect and how they're missing connections. But it wasn't until I became proximate to them in this way, where I got to see mm. them be a uh, in my role as a faculty member, in my role as a as a dean, or whatever the case may be. But bringing that role into the living space and having opportunities to discuss their you know, their developmental trajectories with the the range of possibilities for finding intellectual home at an institution like Duke and just, you know, offering even uh, words of encouragement for folks to move in spaces that they don't see themselves reflected in as normal, you know, normally mm -hmm. given who's, uh, you know, who's populating certain disciplines. Right. And also being a home base. Right. So I have, you know, I have engineering students, right, who see who find, uh, you know, the relationship as a home base, even though their academic pursuits move them into this space. But as their faculty in residence, right, when the, the big questions come, when I'm thinking about graduate school, when I'm thinking about what I want to do for research projects, when I'm thinking about love, when I'm thinking about all these right. things, they have this trusted intellectual partner. Uh, and I want to, and I do want to, you know, kind of tie that in that the, that the faculty in residence role is a intellectual partner. And it's different than I would say sort of like an academic advisor or something like that, mm -hmm. but it's a partnership mm -hmm. that allows mm -hmm. for a different type of relationship to form. And, you know, the, the more we're able to sort of germinate from that seed and, and spread that 
because I think that it's beautiful in the first year, but oftentimes it's that second year where our students still need sort of that home base and that guidance from intellectual partnership as they seek their mm-hmm. academic homes. Right. Well, and, and I imagine that in some ways, and you know, you alluded to this, in some ways you're having to have conversations of cultural differences, especially if the intellectual partner doesn't come from spaces that are uh, similar to that of the student, they, students or students that they're interacting with. Do you want to respond to that? Go for it. This group of uh, learners, and you know, Duke is, is one of these places where you have like top 1% of all the learners in the known universe, right? Mm. But just to hear this generation talk about difference, their ability to understand difference and accept right. difference right. in many, many, many ways. But for many, this is the first time they're going to live so approximate to difference. Mm. And so it goes from being uh, something that's sort of an accepted and understood to actually something that's in practice. And how do you, you know, how do you anticipate what it's like for a, let's say, a, a low-income first-generation student of color coming to this space and uh, living and learning here? And then how do you anticipate the, the relationship that might be put into place by, by even random roommate assignment of a, of a student who is a fourth generation Duke, you know, Duke student in their family. And some of the, you know, understood keys to success at Duke may be by that kid who is a fourth generation Duke student, where, you know, just remembering the name of buildings can be incredibly complicated for that student who has only ever right. visited here doing a recruitment effort. Yeah. Right. So right. anticipating anticipating that difference, but then, you know, helping students appreciate that, that there's a beauty in that difference and there's some incredible value in that difference. If you can actually get students engaged enough to uh, share who they are, right? right? Neither of these people represent the totality of the communities that they come from. So they all represent something right. incredibly unique. And if you can sort of get them to a place of connecting as two intellectual students right. who both belong here, right? right. No hyphenation, right. no adjectives. You're both Duke students. And you can really build some incredibly dynamic relationships there where right. you, raise right. the con- you raise the awareness and conscientiousness on both ends. Because let me do tell you, there's a lot of growth and a lot of complications that come from both sides. Right. So. Right. 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 Mary, Pat, I just saw your hand. Do you want to? Did you want to comment and follow up on that statement? Yeah, I just want to sort of draw the thread back to that idea of you know if you're in a shared home, right? So if your residential space is your mm-hmm. home and how you live and learn together and sort of share your share your sort of space, you takes back to the just space piece the, and that sort of the contrast with the formal classroom and formal learning and where that real sort of human connection comes from. I'm getting a real good sense of of just how meaningful this engagement is. And, and John made a statement just a second ago, kind of talking about the educational and growth element for both, you know, all the people that are coming together, right? And and I would imagine that in some ways, you all are having to grapple with this impetus of things like anti-racism as a, as a way to kind of help navigate some of these territories that you're running into. So Mary Pat, since you're already, uh, you're already uh, open mic, you know, how do you personally define the term anti-racism? How does Duke or more specifically your charge uh, define it? 
Yeah, um, I would say you know my definition of anti-racism, I think personally and professionally, are pretty close to each other. And it really is sort of what are you actively doing to dismantle systemic anti-black racism and structural systems that are you know that put a hierarchy in place that prevent full inclusion for everybody's experiences, everybody's lived experiences in a residential community. That's my job, you know, civic and community world that we live in outside of our jobs, right? You know, so it goes straight to this, right? You know, this is this is right. when we think about you know now spent. 25 years, maybe uh, around there, you know, at privileged white institutions that were all male um, up until the mm-hmm. 1960s or 70s, um, you know, that were segregated, right, in Duke's case, built with a, an idea in mind of students, you know, and Gary and I were just talking about, you know, if I ever go back and do more study, like what kind of study I'm going to do, and one of the things I'm really interested in right now is, is probably farther ahead than you want to go in this particular question, but I'll just, I'll just lay it out, which is, <laughs> you know, we're about to come into a post-pandemic sort of reckoning of what does a place like Duke teach, you know, how do we teach it? Who's here and how do we sort of foster learning and excellence, you know, in the in the mm-hmm. platforms that mm-hmm. we have. You know, and you think about like after the Vietnam Vietnam War and all the things that changed the civil rights movement, all the things that changed in places like this. You know, I, I won't take us through post World War Two and post World War One and the influenza pandemic, but look, higher ed, particularly elite, elite higher ed like Duke, selected places, residential places, PWIs, they really right. kind of stick to a plan for decades, right? And right. so we're right. actually talking about, you know, what does the post pandemic living and learning experience look like? And, you know, how do we ensure that some of the assumptions that we carry or more of the assumptions that we carry, which I have you know, their roots in this privileged white, all male place, um, how right. do we ensure that the orientation, first year residence halls, East Campus, West Campus, you know, the career, you know, how we help people think about, you know, quote unquote networking for careers. You know, there's a million different ways that the language that we use, the the assumptions that are sort of driven. And I think one of one of our questions, you know, Gary's and John's and mine and our roles and then our teams is how do we understand where we're actually sort of tacitly reinforcing, you know, kind of elements right. of that sort of, you know, who's supposed to be here? And I'm air quoting in my office, right? Who, you know, right. who is this experience designed for? And how do we make sure that we're really designing the next round of this experience for the students who are here and the students who are coming? Regard, you know, not regardless, not regardless. And I think maybe this is maybe something that happened in the, if I was going to say the beginning of my career 20 years ago, it was sort of like the celebrate diversity, inclu- you know, moving towards inclusion right. model, right? And then as we right. get to the anti-racist space, What are we actually actively doing on a day-to-day basis, semester to semester, year to year, to make sure this space is aware of itself, aware of the history, and sort of taking steps to go beyond sort of recognition of diverse experiences, beyond sort of, you know, making it inclusive, really to making it equitable. That makes so much sense. Gary or John, do you want to follow up? Gary, go for it. I'll just build on what Mary Pat was saying to, to note that, you know, from my perspective, one of the greatest myths that's embraced by modern higher education is the notion that we are inclusive and that we're places that know anything about the free exchange of ideas. To the extent that we have ever freely exchanged ideas, it's really only been a product of the last generation or two. Before that, there weren't a lot of people who were free to exchange those ideas in the, in the universities right. that we like right. to hold up as espousing these perspectives. So I have very little tolerance for the kind of institutional elitism that we often see in from many universities that argue that we really know how to do this work. We don't. Many of us leading these institutions grew up in times and in places 
that were far more homogenous than many of our students were raised in right, right. and grew up in with sort of in social systems and with social experiences that did not prepare us for having these conversations and right. to say anything else i think is is really problematic there are absolutely exceptions to this but as a but as a rule i think it would be safer for us to presume that we know a lot less about this than than we sometimes claim and so what excites me about this work is that we're all kind of learning we have the potential to kind of all kind of be learning together mm. and we're working with a group of students who are who've been raised very differently in cultures and climates and contexts that are very different than the ones in which we were raised. But you know, who also many of our students, you know, were raised culturally different, but in, in environments that were similarly homogenous, right? I mean, it's a right. it's a really complex set of uh, situations that present themselves. And so, you know, I think universities like ours, what I'm what I'm excited about as a as a scholar. And as a person who's who cares about about anti-racism generally, is that you know right now we are rebuilding, we're retooling, we're rearchitecting. When we're learning, we're learning alongside our students. We're not making presumptions that our former system was sufficient. We recognize that there are mm -hmm. gaps, and we're trying to build mm -hmm. towards mm -hmm. a model that will better support our students in the years to come. And that's that's I think about all you can ask from universities like ours. Thank you. Thank you. John, did you want to add anything? I think Mary Pat and Gary have definitely given us a, a sure foundation, but I didn't know if there's anything you wanted to expand on. I think that this moment provides us a, a really good opportunity to have a sustained focus on anti-racism. I came along uh, during a period of time where diversity was a like the benchmark of progress. And so it was it was more about making room for difference. And then moving, you know, over the last you know, decade or so into this conversation of bias and inclusion. And uh, my question had always been, but how are we transformed? Like, how are we different by becoming mm -hmm. our diversity? Not so much so just giving diversity a corner to sit in, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. does diversity fundamentally shift who we are and how we engage in the world? And the type of education we provide. And then came around to the heavy work of anti-racism. And this one is different because it requires individuals to do their work. Mm. You, mm. There, there is no workshop that's going to make you an anti-racist. There isn't a group who is, if you were born and raised in America, at least to me, there's no group who doesn't have, need to do work on that. Like me as a black man, I have right. to do anti-racism work to understand how being sort of, you know, born and raised in a society that, you know, that has its foundations in racism and many of its institutions and, and just how uh, the society operates where race is mm -hmm. such a key part. I am myself charged with doing the work to make sure that I am uh, assuming an anti-racist posture in right. my movement, right? So it's not enough right. to be not racist, but it instead anti-racist. And that's a very different right. position to be in because for so long, the movement was to try to not be racist. But when you ask somebody to be anti-racist, that's a very active right. position to take. 
And the other part of that is if you are, you know, if we are acting from an anti-racist perspective, then all of the gradations of the isms get attention, right? So it's not, this this is not just sort of one pocket that gets addressed because you can't be anti-racist to black people and be racist to Latino people. It just doesn't make sense, right? Right. my approach as I'm, as I've been thinking about it is number one, to really, before I go and try to tell somebody how to do it, I need to do the work. And then I'm encouraging folks who are stating the commitment, right? Students saying they want to do this, faculty say they want to do this, staff say they're going to do this. So then how do we encourage each other to actively do the work of sort of deprogramming ourselves and then mm-hmm. providing space for actually to engage in anti-racist efforts well i mean that's and like always john you do a great job of setting us up for the kind of the next leap and and gary i actually want to come back to you specifically on this one just because you were a part of that initial task force under uh, betsy holden i i want to kind of get at this this question you know specific to the next gen living and learning committee how are you all defining just space or, or spatial justice i feel like in some ways, your your committee kind of came to that as a baseline conclusion that, hey, these are the recommendations we have to put forward. You know, this is what Mary Pat was going to ultimately, like we said earlier, pick up the reins to be involved with. So how were you all kind of defining that particular term? Yeah, so maybe I, I'll get us started and and pass the mic to my colleagues here to finish, because I, I actually wish that we'd use the language of just space in our mm. initial set of deliberations. I think it's a, the, the notion itself is powerful it, and uh, it's not one that we confronted directly, but I think philosophically where we landed is certainly aligned with notions of just space. And, you know, I think fundamentally, I, I think just to riff a bit on where John was going, you know, I, I think I've said many times, universities like ours, were not prepared for the diversity that we now enjoy. Right. And right. we had systems and structures and practices and selection strategies that, have reified the same kinds of inequities that we find in other parts of society. And part of the work of anti-racism is sort of tackling those. But even without using the language of anti-racism, I think the part of what our committee recognized was that um, students were having differential experiences in their, in their living and learning environment. Mm-hmm. And that we had some students who were more easily able to access community we have differential levels and uh, of satisfaction. We have differential power in the ability to leverage social networks for all manner of things, social engagement, professional engagements, internships, those kinds of things. And there is some semblance of that that is always true. It is always true right. that individuals and social systems will be able to engage in ways that prize certain sets of qualities. But it's a different thing for an institution to sanction those inequities in the mm creation and in the architecture of its residential experience. Right. And so part of what I think we, where we landed was the idea that we really want all Duke students to have the chance to maximize their experience here and to develop a a Duke identity, to come into community with their peers, to have a a chance to find peers that are Dukies and, and to not allow the constraints of any particular experience that they walk in the door with or that they find when they're immediately here to overly constrain their ability to navigate those kinds of social systems. Like we want Dukies to come here and find a love for the place and find find one another and explore a bit. And for 
the, that not to be impacted immediately by any particular mm. policies or practices that we that we might that we might create. In fact, really what we think the goal of the institution should be to work towards building those that community and building a joyful, right. healthful kind of experience, not right. one that reifies these kinds of, of of the kind of segmentation that that is so pervasive in our society. And just on that last point, you know, one of the things that's really different about this current generation of our Duke undergraduates is that they have lived and come of age in a world in which the ability to curate your own experiences and live in kind of a hyper-segmented reality has just been very prevalent. And I say that with mm. no valence attached. Like it is, it is what it is. And in many respects, it's it it leads to, I think it's actually, you know, added to students' ability to navigate the academic portions of their lives in really, in really successful ways. But right. but we don't want it to come here and then imagine you your job is to find the people who are just like you, who care about the things that you that just you care about, right? Like the, mm. the goal of the modern university with all the diversity that we now enjoy should be that you come and you find a place where you feel safe, but that you have the ability to engage with others and learn and explore and, and continue to develop in ways right. that enrich you and the people around you. And so I think that like spiritually, that's sort of where we landed with our initial set of recommendations. We can talk about the specifics, but I think that's what we wanted to try to achieve with this work. John, where were you while this this process was kind of being shaped and shook out? You you mentioned earlier that you were eager to sign on. So where were you while this was happening and how were you helping to mold and shape this definition of, of spatial justice in this space? I've been in these kind of fortunate positions. I was an academic dean, and then I became uh, the senior associate dean for strategic planning and arts and sciences, which then placed me in a, in a position to work more closely with Gary and his and his office. And gotcha. uh, you know, okay. it, it, it was fascinating because I would go over, and you know, the, the folks over in Gary's shop would know that if I walked in and I caught him in there, we planned to sit there for about you know, 10 minutes and we actually wound up sitting there for an hour and everybody's gone home and, <laughs> and we're, <laughs> we're both sitting there, you know, and we're still going into, you know, we're still diving into it. And Gary and others were involved in the work, you know, in the formal group. I considered myself a partner in the work in these exchanges that we were having. You know, those of us who've, you know, been sort of been really you know, committed to, you know, providing spaces where students from varying backgrounds and then difference in perspective to come together, right? And actually be able to sit in those spaces, mm. even though they may be uncomfortable, even though we may be talking about very difficult and complex things. I used to always remind students that, you know, world changes have to sit in the room with people who they do not see eye to eye with to change the world. Like you just can't do it, mm. you know, in, mm -hmm. in a room full of people who are just like you because the world doesn't right. include only you, right? So I was drawn to that work, and I was fortunate enough that, that Gary made me a thought partner to the effort and then was able to come on more formally more, you know, once I became dean of students. Mary Pat, I'm asking the historical context because I feel like understanding mm -hmm. where we were coming from helps to understand the group's commitment and definition for you know, the language of spatial justice. Gary talked about it wasn't language that you all were using, but you were meaningfully aligned within that space. So how are you, as you all are kind of moving forward, how are you using this now new set of words to help to tease out some of these, you know, these discomforts that we know students are going to have to sit in? How are you helping to define spatial justice by the way it's arranged and showing up? 
Yeah, you know, part of the charge for living and learning 2.0, right, the group that's, that John is chairing with Linda right now, is this idea, and you read it at the beginning, Michael, you know, this idea of sort of what's distinctly Duke, you know, how do we take what we need going forward and build something from here that is characteristic of the sort of best of Duke in the sense of who's here, how people are learning, you know, this idea of sort of all the incredible minds and, you know, ambitions that are sort of collected in our student body at any given point in time, right? Sometimes it helps to have somebody who has not been here to help right. think about this question of just space, right? Because, right. you know, there are presets and, you know, having gone from one place to another to another in the past six years uh, or seven years, you, you get a little sense of sort of which things are movable challenges, right? And which things are sort of right. built, you know, I have a theory that a lot of a lot of sort of what we see in sort of student culture left unchecked is, is kind of carryover from who is, goes back to what I was saying before about who was the undergraduate experience initially built for back in whatever right. year you want to talk about. And oftentimes when there was a point where a lot of students went to prep school, right. And came in, you know, came right. into Duke from a, you know, they were from families that were college going from family, you know, they had a probably maybe had sort of a pretty clear path for a professional path after college. And they were carrying some of their, you know, sort of secondary experiences and in the sort of building a college culture that goes, and you can see these different pieces of mm. campus cultures that, you know, you can, you can sit down and about, 15 other schools and find some of the same elements of sort of like who's who and how does it work and you know what is what does housing look like what you know all this stuff but I think being new you can sometimes see that is a function of you know the housing lottery system and right. which group you know which what which gate opens first right and then mm. and who gets to open that gate first you know if it be you know the selective living process if it's how we block juniors and seniors, you know, in different spaces, how we think about sort of when first years on East really start understanding what their options are on West, right? There's a million different ways that mm-hmm. you can sequence the process of where you live. And I'll, and I'll Michael, while I'm on, while I'm off mute, I'll just say that in the hierarchy of sort of how people learn, going back to the same idea of how people learn, being in a space that you feel comfortable in and sort of feeling like, you know, we know that in October, if not sooner, in a first year's experience here at Duke, people start thinking about where am I going to live my second year, right? And who am right, I going to live with? Right, and who exactly. are my people? Exactly. And oftentimes that conversation comes up and starts kind of, kind of entering somebody's kind of thinking process you know, by as early as orientation or sooner, right? And I'll tell you, that's right. a movable thing, right? So everywhere I've been, that's right. been true. This question of who are my people? Where's my community? You know, which which is you know it takes time to figure out who, but the but the logistics of how we could sort of we could switch that part over to the logistics of how I transfer my AP credits and think about double majoring. You know, right. the the log- logistical navigation of the undergraduate experience is is a kind of a consuming focus for you know for everybody. Right. And then you have to right. like leave room for the human development. And sometimes the logistics can take over as sort of a common currency. That's mm. a long way of saying yeah. coming in and seeing which elements of this, like which parts of our Duke process set it up so that we were maybe creating an environment where we were adding, actually we were creating an environment where we were adding anxiety, adding the sense of you have to then get through another hoop or set of hoops and be vetted somehow as, as sort of enough for your sophomore housing, right? And, and that, that's, that right, I think has stood right, out right. People before I got here as something we wanted to address. But I think I came in with some tools and experiences relevant from other places that would help us do that. If we're going to talk about this space of creating a lot of anxiety you know, in, in preparation for the sophomore year, I feel like we should step backwards for a second and kind of talk about the old system of selective living groups here. Duke, can you, you know, tell us about that? What were the different attempts at spatial justice for students who were unaffiliated with selective living groups? Can you kind of talk about that for listeners who are either A, new to Duke University or B, 
or just kind of you've got a group of first years who are trying to figure out what's going to be the next step for them. So can you kind of remind us what that looked like? Yeah, when I start and then Gary and John can sort of help because they've got a better sense of the history, I think, having lived it. You know, in the mid-90s, Duke established, President Cohan established the the all-first-year campus on East. And I've talked to alums that remember when that was the women's campus. This woman who's now the VP at Wake is a Duke grad, Penny Rue, and her summer internship job was designing the first all-student orientation as opposed to the women's orientation, the men's orientation, right? Um, so lots, lots right. of history back there. In the 2000s and the 2010s, there were attempts to sort of, there's been a selective living group sort of element in the West Campus undergraduate experience, I think since the East-West first year Mm. experience was designed. The most recent iterations that I have seen or that I know of involve a sort of first wave of housing collection process for selective living groups ahead of an independent student finding a house or finding a place to mm. live on West, right? So the SLGs, I walked out of my office last January um, one night and the landing in Bryan Center was packed with people and all the doors on all the archways in all of West, it's felt like we're open, there's music playing. And I realized it was sort of orientation night for all the all the SLGs mm. to, show, to show first years what they what they had and you know kind of give people a chance to experience. Rush was starting, recruitment was starting for Greek orgs and SLGs, non-Greek orgs. Um, so that... You know, that then it became very clear, and this is also true everywhere I've been, that, that when that processor kicks up, kicks into gear, it is a consuming energy if you're mm. a part of it or if you're not a part of it, but you're a member of the first year class, right? So who's going to be right. where? How are you going to figure it out? Who's, you know, what, what do you have to do? So that SLG process came first, and then the housing process for anybody who was not part of, um, didn't sort of, I guess, match or be accepted, I don't know how you want to phrase it, but land in an SLG. The students who did not either didn't try or tried and were not ultimately brought into one of these SLGs would then find housing. And here's the part that was a little flawed in the whatever housing was left on West. Right. And that Mm. actually that tells me that there's a lack of design around how do we make. And this is what we sort of started with on one of the presets for the living learning group is we need to have it be that everybody's got a space. And then you can sort of figure out where you want to maybe substrate right. by yourself or find a community in addition to that. But that's the thing that we really kind of, we really, we issued a decision on that rather than ask the living learning group to do it because we want it, we want it to be that everybody has a landing spot that they're, that they're, you know, first year, you know, you're going to have a destination in your second year and it's right. not quite so up to um, being selected or not. John, it sounded like you want to go. I, and uh, I just wanted to, just because Mary Pat, you know, laid it out there. So, so the thing that that's super exciting about this, right. And again, it's because I live here and I, and I got to be pretty proximate to the students and watching their processes. If I give you a snapshot of what a first year was like, you'd spend that first semester, you know, students are transitioning to college and learning how to do college. Uh, they have that first round of midterms. And then you're, you know, the houses are, are having events, faculty residents are having events. We do a lot of these things to sort of develop the identity of the living space, of the neighborhood, of the community get to know folks, really try to, you know, integrate students into the collegiate experience, like just transitioning them in, letting them become experts on how to do college, right? And then they go home for the break, and all of a sudden, we're all sitting around with three, four, I mean, but we had 20, 30, 40, 50 people in the event, and then in the spring, we got five people. You know, six people, mm. three people, no one. Mm. And that would last until about spring break or shortly thereafter once all of the selectivity 
had had you know um, once all the students finished rushing and doing all those things, and then really watching uh, the group kind of coalesce back together and try to find that community space again. But the thing that was so striking for those of us who hadn't you know lived with students and began living with students was the the level of anxiety about where I'm going to live in the spring. I mean, in, in year two, who am I? Who are going to be my friends in year two? So students really sort of just began to operate with this level of anxiety about uh, living space that was so unusual to me, to me prior to, you know, because I didn't appreciate that that level of anxiety was operating uh, right. within the student right. body of the first year right. students of this sense of if I don't get selected, I stand less of a chance to having a fulfilling, joyful Duke experience because I wasn't selected to and and there was this perceived risk of, you know, getting sub-optimal housing, not being able to mm. be with people they know, the fear of, of of being sort of not even being with the, the group that they were new in the first year, right? Just right. like the fear that, that right. unless you're connected to this, uh, a, an organization moving that has housing on the, on the uh, West campus, you stand the chance of being incredibly isolated and unable to form community during your second year. Right. And then I'm assuming that this anxiety, you know, basically it's the, if, if I have suboptimal housing, I'm not with my friends in year two, all those other things, that's effectively the end of my Duke career. Like I'm going two, three, and four, you know, I'm not going to probably Correct. regain that footing. Correct. Absolutely. And uh, th that level of anxiety was always shocking because, you know, and, and not appreciating how the culture was set up when I first got here, you know, in my mind, I was like, of course, you could develop more friendships and you could do, but just, it was just the understanding on the students' parts about how you had a window for setting your social community. You had a mm -hmm. window for doing that, that occurred at the beginning of the spring of your first year. If you miss out on that window, <laughs> that short window, you had that window, the opportunities for, <laughs> establishing community and connection are drastically reduced. And it was, mm. it was, it was really, really intense to see the uh, level of anxiety for the student. Just, just to amplify this, this point he's making, it is, you know, I don't blame our students at, at all. I don't think he is either. I'm just, just going to say that like, what's striking to me is like, you don't get into Duke because you leave a lot to chance, right? Mm. Like, you, mm -hmm. we, we select literally for people who are, great at checking the boxes, right? Of doing everything we ask them to do. So uncertainty, um, chance, happenstance are just not values that we select for. Right. And, right. and in fact, our system was largely set up, you know, as John is saying, to to even magnify some of the anxieties that come along with that level of uncertainty. And so students were doing what students know how to do. And they're trying to bring certainty to an extraordinarily uncertain process. The problem is like when you start to believe that systems that were created and, and kind of cobbled together over time that are reinforcing values that are not really consistent with what we're espousing as an institution, when you start to believe that there's some like function or intentionality behind the way that that system is architected. Again, with no valence attached, but as Duke became an has become an institution that increasingly is occupied with, by students for whom these are, are kind of like real, really important traits, like making sure that like 
I have a clear sense of what's going to happen next year. And I make sure I'm going to get have the best opportunity to maximize my social inclusion and have the best opportunity to ensure that I, I'm surrounded by peers that will um, support me in the ways that I expect that, you know, it, it just sort of, our, our system didn't, didn't really keep up, hasn't really kept up with right. the students that we now have. And so now we have a great, we have a great chance to really, to make some, some changes, I think that will, will help to ease some of those anxieties for, for all members of our community. I think this is a brilliant opportunity to move forward. I think that I, I am going to be honest with you. I think that one of the overwhelming general dispositions uh, kind of as an outsider looking in is trying to understand how you all are going to overcome certain immovable pieces. And, and Mary Pat, you kind of talked about being able to decipher what is movable and what is immovable. And I would imagine mm -hmm. that, you know, you're in the process of creating a model of institutional anti-racist practice that can feel antithetical to the architecture, the literal space that, you know, the model utilizes, you know, thinking specifically of Duke's reputation as the plantation and yep. buildings that are named for people like Braxton Craven or the lack of a legally impactful agreement, you know, or land acknowledgement for the indigenous peoples of Durham. Like, how are you navigating this present legacy in physical space to create safe havens for marginalized students and teachable moments for others? Yeah, this is such a good question. I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll say that there's a lot that we have to go for in this direction, right? You know, that, that we're sort of, we're, you know, one of the things that, that the committee has been doing, and sometimes as we talk about it, we are probably better right now right. at offering diagnostics on what is what is sort of flawed about what we have for a system and sort of naming the things that need to get fixed than we are at sort of saying, and this is where we're headed. And, and you're touching on this other piece, which I think just goes to the, I'm gonna sort of mention the human and residential education side of this first, right. um, which is, how do we think about who you encounter when you sort of, you know, if I'm, you know, if I'm an incoming class of 2025 student and I'm coming into East campus or I'm a rising sophomore class of 24, mm. you know, a second year student, I'm coming into, coming into West right. next year. Who are the humans that define the space in addition to whose space is this? Right. So, so cause I think the people that you meet and the guides that you get and the, the framing, the language, the right. common vocabulary and vernacular that we use to talk about our spaces are a big part of this question, right? Because we one of the we also know, and I've been working with the Black Student Alliance on this, I've been working with um, with our student government leadership on this, and certainly the orientation team, you know, Gary and John and I are all connected, all three of us are connected to mm. Jordan and Hale and his team on these pieces and facts, um, which is how do we sort of set the tone to, to sort of say, you know, and I'll, and I'll go back right. to what I was saying before, which is, right. you know, an orientation program often looks the same place to place and what people cover and how you sort of go through and what this is what you're supposed to do. We really want to think about from the very beginning of somebody's encounter with, with our campus that we are talking about living right. in a community where people bring all kinds of personal, socioeconomic, racial, you know, national, gender identity background. You know, like you name the sort of piece of somebody's identity, ability that we that we are sort of starting at the very beginning in, in a conversation that understands that people are bringing all kinds of elements of themselves right, and right. experiences into the space. Not just say we'll put everybody in this residence hall and wish them luck, right? And and I, you know, and I think there's there's been a real shift in higher ed, or this is why I love my work, right? Is where are the opportunities to equip our amazing students with the ability to see each other, mm. the ability to sort of understand the structures and systems around them and their empowerment to do something about it. And then where's the staff and faculty component that sort of works with them on that. And, you know, just to, to go back to 
something that I think both Gary and John have touched on. You know, our students are amazing in the spaces and the, the presuppositions that we often have. You know, when people talk about orientation, I love asking people about their experience with first year orientation, wherever they went to college. Right. And a lot of the time, if you look at the schedule in most places, the schedule is not that different than the orientation schedule in 1992, right? But the student body is very different at a place like Duke. And so what does that mean? And so what do we have to think about? So we are working on that part right now and, and thinking about we're doing concurrent to their living and learning right. task force with the 2.0 group. We're doing a significant look at the residential life team, for example. And how do we make sure that we have an educational and developmental model that is inclusive, that does think about identities, that thinks about sort of being as actively understanding of the experiences the students bring in and equipping our right, students, right, exactly. not just to talk in the classroom with one another, but to talk in their, res again, back to this idea, it's their homes, right? It's everybody's home, college space. And then the sort of going forward part <laughs> on West, it's not just about <laughs> orientation. It's not just, hey, welcome, there's the laundry room, there's Paige Hall, good luck, right? So the next round is, we're going to give you a little bit of information, wish you luck again. Um, but, you know, we, one of the things that's really emerging from the Living Learning Group is um, understanding that second year, you know, okay, I'm, I just took critical race theory. I just took, a, you know, economic class on poverty. Like, you know, and now I want to talk about that. Where's the faculty member in my living space? Where's my community? How do I take those ideas sort of back to my residence hall with me? So one of the elements of the Living Learning Group right now is is sort of developing this sort of faculty connection on West and additional sort mm. of proactive involved spaces and supports to keep those conversations going outside the classroom and have, you know, where students want it, faculty involvement and mentorship. So it goes to your question, Michael, you know, around sort of how do we think about, you know, land acknowledgements? How do we think about right. sort of elements of our space, the architecture of it? But I'm, I guess I'm going to say we're starting with the human capital, right? Because we, we have a lot of, we have a lot of design work to do for sure. And we have some framing and understanding of the spaces, naming, obviously there's, there's lots of that happening at Duke and there needs right. to be, um, but we also need the people that Jane sophomore meets, you know, in her West campus to be ready to ask those tough questions with her and sort of be in that. So that's, that's a big part of the residential education teamwork that we're doing. We're kind of moving from sort of coverage and on-call and staffing. We have amazing educators in the residential life team, but we've had a structural emphasis on right. that's East campus, that's West campus, on West, you know, the coverage plan, you know, coverage being sort of, you know, sort of pay attention to what's happening transactionally. Um, when they actually have the RC staff and many others have incredible educator skills, how do we coordinate those and emphasize? And how do, how do I, how does John, how does Gary sort of really facilitate an environment where the educators in our residential community can, can have a meaningful role, sort of shift our focus away from sort of the logistics. We need the logistics, but but I think there's been an overemphasis sometimes on the logistics. So going forward, how do we deepen that sort of learning opportunity continuously over first year and second, third, fourth year? I, I'm really, uh, you know, quite moved by that. I like that you are starting at the level of the human capital and are working your way out. And, and I know that there are a lot of conversations uh, about some of, you know, things like building names and stuff like that. I know there's already some short lists that are that have been in, in conversation more directly. I'm I'm also curious, you know, if we're going to be bringing these people in, you know, John had made a statement earlier about, you know, not just opening the space and having diversity sit in the corner, but making sure that the space felt inviting. You know, it makes me think of, you know, the impact of art and themes of the space. You know, I, I when I was thinking more specifically about this, uh, I was thinking about people like, you know, Ernie Barnes, who was a, you know, significant artist who lived in Durham uh, during the, the 
you know, height of the art Harlem Renaissance kind of thing. So, you know, it was about trying to make space with these art pieces, you know, enticing and inviting. I'm also an artist. I can't help but ask questions that are going to live inside of art in some way, shape or form. What are things that you're thinking about that need to be in these rooms? You know, that this room could have previously been defined by, you know, X group or club. How do we make this room now more defined by new people who are going to make new definitions for it? I say the first year dorm Pegram. Uh, you know, that was the arts dorm for many, many years. And the thing that was always fascinating about that space was how incredible their uh, community projects were. Things like, you know, how they mm -hmm. decorated their common space, how they decorated their bench. Now, these students majored all over the place, right? They majored in sort of everything. But they just indicated, you know, prior to getting hit, kind of this interest mm -hmm. in and love for the arts, and they, so they got to live together, and it was, and it set a culture for that dorm that was really interesting and unique, right? You know, I I think that number one, you know, for me, I always try not to divine too much about how exactly the space should be mm -hmm. defined before I have an opportunity to speak to the and to engage the people who live in it. But you know, a part of building that community is for the it could really be about each of those you know classes in this space doing things that right, right, sort right. of uh, put their stamp on what what that community identity is right and um and one of the most incredible ways of doing that as mm -hmm. you you know as you well stated is you know how, what do you how do you decorate a space what, what pictures you bring in uh pictures i always find really meaningful in a space um because they sort of they are the things that that whoever hung them decided they want to visit right. on a regular basis right. for whatever reason. Right? They want to, and they want to be. And I also think that uh, giving a groups an opportunity to do that, perhaps they will actually engage in a care for the space that's kind of different. Mm. So the space isn't just uh, a utility, but more of uh, a a reflection of self. So they care for it differently. The other thing that becomes really important for me uh, in the the living space on campus is for across the spectrum of all humanity engaged in it is seen. And that mm -hmm. goes from mm -hmm. the people who clean the space. That goes for the RAs and the and the RCs and the grad and the grad residents, as well as the faculty and, and, and other staff engaged in the space. So that students are keenly aware that the entire community makes the space. Like Trinity is a beautiful dorm. It's marvelous. But what keeps Trinity a marvelous space mm. is we have about seven or eight housekeeping staff mm. mm -hmm. who are integral to everyone's experience right. to right. living here, right? And that 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 they're a part of the community, right? That that in some way we we really expand engagement in in this space to sort of raise that awareness of of as Mayor Pat put it, you know, the human capital that's involved in creating this this uh, enterprise called Duke, giving our students, uh, you know, creative license to to design the space and to make the space meaningful and livable for themselves. And I think it, I think and, and give it an identity, you know, one that that's not, you know, just a creature comfort kind of identity, but one that really speaks to, who, you know, what emerges as important and, and what right. values exactly. emerge for this group. But that also will take some right. educating people on how to do that. 
Like not a lot, you know, they're they're 18, 19. They I mean they they won't have had a lot of experience on if justice is a value for you. How do you how do you create justice in the space that you live in? Is you know, balance and being centered is a value for you. How do you create that in the space that you live in? If you know, care for fellow human beings is a value to you. How do you make your space, you know, how do you create a space that that emanates those values around you? I was just just noting that um, that I really I really like where John is going. And I just want to connect it with what Mary Pat was saying before. You know, I went to a historically black college. I went to Morehouse College for undergrad. And so we were surrounded by pictures of diverse people. There certainly is an effect that it has in normalizing one's experience and normalizing representation in ways that I think can be very, can be very helpful, but right. You know, right. The risk you run, I think in many respects is believing that that's sufficient. Right. And in fact, it's sort of necessary, but not, not sufficient. Mm. I love that you gave the Ernie Barnes reference because I have, I have a couple of uh, paintings from Ernie Barnes in my office. Exactly. Constantly ask, yes. you know, who painted that? Who painted that? I'm thinking how like Ernie Barnes is a, is a legend, right? A legend. And how a person who, is from this area, and how do we not know who this man, who had a remarkable life, who, who he is, right? We have a great opportunity at a place like Duke because we're an educational institution to be able to both do the kind of surface level things and, and flooding the zone mm. with images and representations from different groups, but, but also then connecting that with um, the sort of educational piece that allows students to understand what it is that we're showing them, why it's there, and what it, what it means. I think that's just... We have, a, we have a lot we can do in that space. You, you did a really great job of kind of uh, threading the through line back to this human capital conversation. You know, it, it means nothing for us to have representation visually if it is not connected to an ethic, uh, if it's not connected to a moral imperative or to even the way in which students can kind of grapple with what that thing may be. Mary Pat, you talked a lot about the human capital element much more defined. And, you know, I would imagine as you're kind of defining, uh, you know, what this is going to look like, uh, there's a broader reorganizing of residential education, housing operations, residential housekeeping, and residential facilities that is actually taking place in housing and residential life. And I know that you all have kind of touched on it, but can you kind of talk about specifically how this fits into the reorganization of leadership teams in undergraduate education and student affairs? The student affairs team broadly has a ton of uh, new leadership and we're anticipating a few more new leaders. You know, major person coming into this conversation will be Shruti Desai, who starts as Associate Vice President of Campus Life next month, um, following uh, Soyla Errol, who um, was the head of Campus Life for many, many years here. And the intersection with our centers, our identity and cultural centers, Mary Lou Williams Center for Black Culture, CMA, um, Center for um, Sexual and Gender Diversity, Women's Center, International House, Muslim Life, Jewish Life. We, we have an amazing group um, that really thinks, you know, and it goes back to this question that you asked a few minutes ago, Michael, about sort of like havens, right? And this qu- this question of sort of where, where do we have sort of um, spaces that are supplemental spaces to the home concept? Mm. And then where do we actually sort of also bring the sort of ongoing sort of education development awareness of sort of identity and sort of justice questions within our home spaces on campus. Like, how do we sort of do that? So we're in a big conversation right now about, you know, sort of integrating the 
the efforts of the okay. campus life teams, including Greek life, including student leadership development with this residential education team um, and the wellness shop. Right? So, so the student affairs division has had kind of high walls between the residential life space, the campus right. life space, the health and wellness space, Dean of students. And, and we're really bringing those walls down right now and helping think about um, sort of the, the sort of core piece. And this is the proposition I have is the core of, um, residential life is a, is a significantly more sort of intentionally inclusive space for students. That doesn't mean that we don't have right. cultural identity development centers. We certainly do and will continue to have those and have intersectional partnerships across those groups. But there's, but there's this element where it's not over there right. that we do that. Right. And here's where sort of, you know, majority students are maybe not as thoughtful about everybody around them. Right. So like, so, you know, we really want to sort of like reimagine those combinations um, going forward. Um, so the residential education partnership, to your question, will be sort of deeply involved in the in the identity and cultural centers work and and with sort of thinking about sort of hall by hall, floor by floor, quad by quad on West. How do right. how do the students right. who live here sort of develop and define a sort of a just space? Or they go back to the top of the whole point of the podcast, right? Um, the housing, the, mm-hmm. the the housing operations team, where you live, putting heads in beds, right? Like that's the sort of core part of the operation. Right? got to be done well that's going to stay in the residential life uh, organization but residential facilities residential housekeeping those teams are actually going to be more coordinated with other parts of student affairs that work in partnership with campus facilities mm. um you know there's you know we have unions in both um the residential and dining shops we right. shouldn't have multiple people sort of you know multiple sort of organizations that that don't necessarily talk to each other when we're really kind of talking about kind of the, the student experience space to space in a different way and you know, this one of the one of the sort of significant changes on the on the design the designs and sort of leadership side is this the person who runs residential facilities. We've had somebody who's right. just focused on uh, renovation projects, building projects, you know, HVAC renewals, and you know, sort of you know, you know, G- Gilbert Adams getting an upgrade. Um, that position has been in just residential life, and we're moving that so that it's it, that we're as we think about. Flowers, Broadhead, mm. you know, Penn Pavilion, different spaces that are in student affairs, but not in the residential shop. That the person who sort of thinks about building and renovation and sort of um, ongoing projects to keep our facility thoughtful. That position is moving out of residential life and sort of into a broader remit across dining um, and campus life spaces. So that's going to be an interesting. It, it, we're going to have some developmental focus in the residential education shop, and hopefully a little bit more coordination. Um, you know, within our teams and student affairs, both within the within our shop and then with the right. with other partners at the university, because there's 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 a lot of logistics behind, you know, just the utilities, right? You know, the heating, you know, heating and lighting, right. exactly. um, the square footage of the residential footprint of Duke is, you know, that's a massive operational job. Um, but then renovating it and, and kind of a little bit to your art question. I'm sorry to go on about this, um, but the. But one of the big things, one of the first things I want to do is really think about sort of, you know, and John and Gary have heard me on this, lighting, right? Sort of how we light spaces, how we invite people with lighting, um, the efficiency of our lighting, the sustainability of our, you know, of our sort of footprint, but also this, you know, just sort of spaces sort of, you know, there's, there's, a, there's we have these gothic residential spaces. Some of them are, you know, been around for a while. How do we think about sort of the spaces having sort of light and welcome and sort of, you know, the, the environment that fosters that kind of connection and, and study visually we're you know we're in we're in a lot of we're in a moment of tremendous change but the idea is that we'll have a collaborative team that works to foster this kind of ongoing four-year uh, learning cycle um, that supports our students in their in their, their, their number one full-time pursuit which is being students here at duke
and and I do before you know Gary or, or John jumps in, I do want to acknowledge that as an Afro-Indigenous man myself, I appreciate lighting because it gives me the opportunity to be perceived as less mm -hmm. threatening. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I, I don't feel like I'm you know lurking in a corner when people can see me clearly, and I'm able to deal with my own safety relative to other people's expectations mm -hmm. of who I am. So. Mm -hmm. It's something that stays on my mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. John, Gary, did you want to elaborate or expand on, you know, I, I, it, there's a lot of moving parts to this. And so I, I'm very eager to kind of hear your perspectives. Since joining uh, Student Affairs uh, in August, uh, the, uh, the amount of sort of optimizing teams, meaning thinking about, you know, how do, we, how do you centralize teams in order to get more uh, sort of heft from the brain trust that is there. How do you uh, centralize vision? Um, and Mary Pat's just been just amazing for you know me coming in, working under her, and, mm -hmm. and you know giving me the, her vision, and then I taking that and sort of translating that across the team. And so when you asked a question about how have teams um, sort of shifted, you know one of the things that we've you know just done has has been to really begin and and this is a you know, this is not a it's not an event right it's a process but how do right. you sort of optimize your team in a way that you that it's correctly organized and then they uh have that uniformity of vision everyone has that same perspective of you know right. the overarching the goal of what we're trying to uh deliver to our students here right you want a transformational academic and living experience and your your tie to this place should uh, allow you to come and exit you know uh with 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 incredible growth and leave this place different more whole than you than you arrived and so it's been really wonderful right. to work with folks that i've known for a really long time work mm -hmm. with people that i'm just getting to know but that uniformity of vision right. all guided by these sort of higher right, order values. Right. Um, and, and it's nice. It's, it's wonderful to be able to have this kind of conversation, right? And with leadership and, and understand that like this level of leadership right, right. is in sync and even the levels ahead of, you know, above this level are sync. And this, mm -hmm. this is a very unique time, uh, Duke. And I, and I, and I hope that um, your listeners can appreciate that, you mm -hmm. know, though it, it, it is, it can seem, you know, like the boat is slow to, to turn because it's so big in the ocean and the ocean's so vast and it's hard to see. But but that it is not lost on any of us that we are all here together at a very unique time right. and space and that, you know, we have a, a we have incredible challenges ahead. But but we also have a team that I think are, you know, are prepared by experiences prior to coming together to meet those challenges. I'll just add, John, that John John's so right about this. And, you know, I spend a, these days not a small amount of time talking to other faculty who have interests in going into mm. academic administration. And it's not an obvious path for most of us who choose to be faculty members. And one of the, the questions they often ask is, you know, can you can you use your your voice? Like, do you have to sacrifice your voice when you become an administrator? And just riffing a bit on John's point about our the current moment at Duke, right. and you know what's amazing to me is that of course you do to some degree, right? Like, you <laughs> one represents an institution, and it wouldn't be responsible to say all the crazy things I said as a faculty member. 
But for the most part, you know, you're, I think you, you, you'll hear that from us today. Like we're, mm. we are, we are who we are. We are, we are the people we were before we stepped into these roles. And, um, and it's remarkably, it's a remarkable, you know, as a person who's been here for a long time and who never imagined seeing people who look like we do in these roles, it is a, it's a wonderful moment to be able to, to leverage our kind of collective backgrounds in a really authentic way in, in this work. The other thing, and so I, I say that not, not to pat ourselves on the back, but to actually give people both right. who aspire to this kind of work, but also people who are, are looking at us wondering whether they should be critical of us. Like, you know, that like we are, we're bringing ourselves into this work. Like it's, it's, it's actually too, in some respects, these are, these roles and this work is too challenging. I think I right. can imagine how you, you don't show up bringing your, your full self into this, this, this kind of work, but we are allowed to do that today in a way that I think has, has not always been the case. And one of my foremost observations in this job has been that there is a tendency in academic organizations for academic organizations and in academic communities to kind of look at the people, like look at the principles, look at the individuals who are sitting in the seats, usually at the highest levels and to really attend to them. Whereas like in most other organizations in the American mm. economy, we, we put a priority on the teams. We notice the teams. We think about the teams. We talk about the importance of building teams. Um, in academic organizations, we, are, we, we miss the fact that there are hundreds and hundreds of right. people who care deeply about the mission of this right. place, who are engaged in the work, right. and who are responsible for carrying the work forward. Right, like All, all we're doing is casting a vision. And trying to build the teams that will do the hard work to make these kinds of changes possible. So I, I just want to amplify the point that both Mary Pat and John made. Like, and with the focus on team, the focus on team is absolutely critical to getting this work done. And I hope that in the years to come, our students and our community members will begin to recognize the the really critical efforts that literally many hundreds of people play every day to um, to making this place just a little bit better. I really appreciate this idea of the formation of the team, you know, as the singular, as the answer, you know, there's the finished a, a podcast series uh, not too long ago with um, Dr. Cisco Ramos, who's uh, one of the deans over at um, the graduate school. And he, in the end, had made the statement, uh, and it's, it's very much hearkening back to the old African proverb, uh, if you want to go there fast, go alone. If you want to go there meaningfully and, and with, you know, all of the impetus and, and auspice that you're supposed to to make significant change go together. So, you know, I, I very much get that vibrance from you all. As we're kind of navigating that, there's this mm -hmm. conversation of hiring of of different persons in different spaces. And if, if I'm not wrong, there's a there's an executive director of facility operations that you all are currently looking at bringing in. How do we ensure that this person kind of inside of the conversations that we've just talked about with reorganization of the leadership structures, how do we ensure that this person isn't just seen as a senior handy person? How do we do that intentional touch to ensure that this person's empowered to also be one of the people in that village that you're setting up for uh, meaningfully for the students? Hiring processes that we've been we've been running with anything right. related to sort of a, a leadership position that involves student life has involved students, right? So we're going to have students be a part of that process, just as we, you know, with the Dean of Students Search, you know, with our Shruti's uh, recent hire, you know, uh, we've got the Mary Lou Williams Center Director mm. Search coming up next. Um, you know, having students be meaningfully involved in those processes is really, really, really important. 
you know, and then our leadership team, you know, sort of that, that walls lower, um, bringing people into, into one another's working conversations. That's, that's also what we've been doing on the cadence of how we meet as teams, how we connect with mm-hmm. one another, how we mm-hmm. prize each other of our work. Um, and that's been a fun thing to see unfold in the time that I've been here as far as, you know, what's happening in, you know, in residential right. housekeeping and how, you know, how to, how to Bernard and Karima keep everybody else surprised at what they're working on with their teams, right. you know, and ha- what's happening and how do we think about, you know, the intersection between our right. departments and, and sort of the strategic work. So that's going to be a big part of that. I, you know, I think I know that systems that, that expand past any individual are very helpful and that are sort of, you know, that we kind of have our core right. values and student affairs. And we've got five, um, you know, meaningful inclusion, moving towards equity, right? Um, continuous growth and professional development, strategic communications. It's not really a value, but we're trying to think about how we communicate a lot more because so much of what we do is under, under understood by others, right? Um, you know, professionalism and mutual respect, right? So thinking about sort of where, you know, when we're out of jobs, how do we sort of bring each other, you know, you bring your whole person, as Gary said, um, and supporting that for one another, health and wellness, right? So, I mean, because we've got student health, CAPS, all those different pieces. So we try to make right. sure that those five elements of our work are sort of lifted up and sort of kind of that we, that we consistently touch on them. So we'll be doing that with all of our new hires and our and our growth within our own team. It's, it's that's that part's been, there's so many talented people, you know, I'm scared. So there's so many people that are coming in every day to make things happen um, at this university and support the, support the, the sort of vision right. that we're we're laying out and then sort of iterating on it, working with us on it, working meeting our students where they are. That part's been really fun. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. So just to to kind of change gears just a little bit, you know, we've we focused a lot on identity uh, and, and social elements in that way, but you know, I, I think that you're, we have Duke University has been graced to be able to have differently abled people in its spaces all the time. You know, Mary Pat, you started talking about lighting as an example. Uh, I, I was thinking, oh, okay, lighting for folks who may be legally blind is going to be something that is definitely a, a, a big motivator to want to show up at this university. What are ways that the next-gen living and learning communities are making themselves more accessible for differently abled people? That's got to be a piece of how we think about space. You know, the, the committee's going to give us the recommendations around, you know, where where space renovation might be. You know, are, are we going to add anything? One, when I immediately start thinking right. about accessibility in spaces, I start thinking about sort of hallways, widths, you know, counter heights. You know, there's coding, there's coding elements to create spaces to be more sort of accessible. But then there's also the sort of who's at the table, right? You know, we're, we're, we worked this year with the Disability Alliance student group to, mm. and we are in the midst pandemic kind of paused us, but we we have a dedicated space for the Duke Disability Alliance students in the Bryan Center. That was something they'd been seeking for a while and, and we're making it happen, which is which is good. We can't, our spaces are all on, on pause because of the pandemic. Right, the right. bigger piece, it's how do we make sure that we're, that we're not thinking later about these these elements of, you know, again, that same question of who's here, who's experiencing the place. Lighting's a part of it. Um, translation services is a part of it. Um, you know, captioning, uh, you know, how do we think about our poster designs? You know, as we think about, we had a really fascinating conversation with the Living Learning Big Committee, the full committee in January, I think, around signage, yeah, right? Yeah. And, you know, and, and, you know, how much of Duke residential spaces, um, you kind of have to know what they are. You know, the benches right. might tell you, but they may not. And, you know, so there's there's a lot of access. Um, you know, I could keep going on sort of ways that we think about this. It's got to be part, we don't want to just leave that with the Living Learning Committee because I think that's a broader um, sort of, it needs to be at the front page for right. Duke all the time. John, did you want to jump in? Yeah, you know, one group that uh, that can easily, especially when we're thinking about 
mm-hmm. uh, the living and learning space and, and disability or, or is uh, neuroatypical students, individuals who who socialize differently, individuals who respond different ways to different types of stimuli, whether it's whether it's that lighting you mentioned or noise levels or how for some neurotypical students, they're not going to feel comfortable walking into a right. room full of people where they're maybe perhaps more comfortable in spaces in which they're invited or smaller spaces. And are we attending to them in those spaces? Because, you know, if students are quiet, are they, are we, you know, actively scanning to be meaningfully uh, interconnected? We do have folks in student affairs who are well, there's a there's an actual neurotypical task force um, that is there. I don't want that's not the proper name, but they are they have been working for the last several years to uh, bring greater awareness and uh, to this growing body of our students, and 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 I think they've had a meaningful impact on how we think about uh, events, even like LDOC or how we think about right. it. because we want those students to be able to have experiences, but we need to give. Them, uh, the you know, we need to we need to remove barriers right. from right. them uh, being able to enjoy all of the things we have to offer. Now that makes perfect sense. That makes perfect sense. You want them to be able to have the best Duke experience that they can have, and that means there's a lot of work on this side of things to to be able to to like you said, remove those barriers and to be in in deep conversation and communication with kind of folks as as they're progressing through their Duke experience. So. So I've got two more questions, uh, and then I'm gonna I'm gonna let you all go. Um, the, I think the the pandemic has been you know kind of a big crush for a lot of folks. It has pushed in in major ways. You know, even throughout this conversation, we've we've bumped up against things that aren't able to happen because of the pandemic's existence. You know, and I know a lot of folks are kind of thinking about the return, you know, there's, there's this hope that we can return to quote unquote, whatever normal is. And I know that Duke is, is kind of on the precipice of trying to be able to be, you know, one of the, 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 if you will, you know, change makers with relation to that while still being responsive to, you know, best practice. So given COVID-19 and Durham's lack of affordable community housing, how are you all helping to navigate those who are able to live on campus? Um, how are you considering COVID's disproportional impact on brown and black communities, especially since the decisions for students to live on campus designates who effectively lives in Durham? Gary, I'm going to throw that one to you first. One of the things that, um, I, you know, I think certainly Mary Pat has, has spearheaded uh, a lot of the work in this effort, but you know, I'd, I'd say this is something that we talked about or we thought about nearly consistently since the start of this. I mean, certainly mm-hmm. since the, the moment that the administration made the decision to shift to remote course delivery. And it's one of the reasons that, you know, one of the first considerations that Mary Pat's team and the university in general um, decided to put in place really right. was a system that allowed students who could not return home for a wide variety of reasons uh, to ensure that they could stay. And indeed, they've stayed. I mean, one of the most remarkable things for me about the pandemic is the perception that people have left and gone home. And in fact, I know that there have been students here for um, not the same students, but the students have been here for the duration. And, you know, and and again, I, I say this not as a, I fear sometimes when we talk about these kinds of things that like there's the 
you know, I, I think about myself as an 18 year old who was kind of critical or at least mildly suspicious of the administration. And I've listened to people say things like what I'm about to say. And I would, I'd roll my eyes and think that, that people like me were patting, patting themselves on the back. It's not that I, you know, I'm an alumnus of the place and I've been here for a long, long time. And, and I'm really proud that in the midst of the pandemic, one of the first principles was that we tried as best as we could in the midst of a pandemic to take care of our community, you know, mm. and, and I, and I think that's stands really in stark contrast to what we saw at other institutions. We have, you know, checking our privilege moment. We had, we have had the resources to be able to do more and we've done a little more. And I think that's been, that's been good. And I've been really, really proud of the way that the team and that the community has rallied around our students who, who are most socioeconomically disadvantaged to try to help where we can. We have not gotten this right all the time. And, but, but I, I would say that I do think that we've tried to be as open as possible to fixing the mistakes that we've made. That, that gives me a lot, of, a lot of pride. I'd say right now, as we're staring down the, the vaccine dissemination, there is a, I think there's a new chart for us right. as a university community to ensure that we're doing all we can to provide both for uh, members of this community, of the, of the Duke community, but also to make sure that we're providing for the broader Durham community to the best of our ability. And I, and I also feel quite confident that we're, that, that today we're, we're meeting that charge as well. Mary Pat, did you want to jump in? I saw that you came off mute right then. <laughs> One of the things that's been different about this year in the pandemic, it has been the number of our students that are living and sort of mm-hmm. renting apartments uh, or renting, renting homes in Durham, right? That's, that's a significantly higher number than, than a typical right. year. Next year is going to be somewhere between the typical year and this year, right? There's going to be, the, the, you know, we have to figure out exactly how we're going to do our de-densification strategy again. You know, one of the most impactful conversations for me this year has been with the Durham Neighbors United group and working with um, Stephanie Williams and the and the Durham Community Affairs team and thinking about sort of the engagement points um, and also working. John, I've been working with the Black Coalition Against Policing mm-hmm. and thinking about the Durham and Duke relationship. Those student leaders who are bringing that conversation right. in into the forefront. Yeah. You know, with you know the other part of our pandemic, our, our double pandemic, instead of thinking about racial justice in terms. So there's there's so many ways that I could go with this piece, Michael, but. It's important to me that that as we continue post pandemic and the other you know in the aftertimes when they come, um, that some of the some of right. the the humility and the thoughtfulness um, that we you know we we bring we we always need to bring more right into the relationship both with our students and with the administration, um, but also with Duke and Durham that 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 those that there are there are so many lessons that people are taking and profound fashion. A lot of people have known a lot before this, but the collective moment that we're in gives us opportunity to really understand place, space, all the work of this, you know, so this podcast thing, all the thematics here. And, you know, there's, there's, there's work to do for sure. I don't want our undergraduate experience to be one that is sort of, you touch into Durham and you touch out, you know, and, and you sort of have a kind of a consumer mentality or sort of a, you know, I don't know, transactional again mentality with our, with our, with our home, with our home community. Um, and that's going to, you know, keep going. I, th- I do think the the, aware, the broader Duke awareness around racial justice issues with Black and Brown community has to be part of what we fold right. and continue, and, and not just sort of not a flash in the pan, but a continuous commitment um, institutionally. You know, you know, now sort of speaking as somebody, one of my big jobs being here is to think about how students bring that, all students bring that 
bring that sort of awareness of our home community into all their experiences in Durham and, and the broader area. So right. that's got to be part of how we emphasize both the living and learning task force. But again, so much more than that. Exactly. Exactly. John, did you want to uh, expand? What you mentioned is is, uh, is a nationally uh, systemic problem, um, obviously, right. with, with how COVID has disproportionately affected you know, black and brown communities, and uh, you know, uh, you know that none of that is is lost on us. And at the same time, you know, it's been pretty remarkable watching teams of our, you know, our best and our brightest come together to try to think about COVID from and and its impact from so many different perspectives, and just to make sure that we have in our, you know, with our access being responsive to the needs in Durham, that we are. You know, being responsive to our students' needs and being responsive to our staff and faculty. And, and a part of being, you know, responsive, responsive to Durham's needs is, is also being, you know, highly responsive to our staff, faculty, and students. But, but it's just been, it, it's been remarkable to, to be a part of uh, such a, uh, you know, a vast array of, of minds that have come together to think about how to um, take care of uh, this community uh, during this prolonged pandemic. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Space of Justice. If you like what you heard today, be sure to stop by sites.duke.edu backslash JustSpace for the recordings of this past year's Just Space Week, Duke University's conference centered entirely on the conversation of spatial justice. This year, Just Space Week is focused on anti-racism, equity, and connecting Duke to Durham in meaningful and just collaborations. Head over to sites.duke.edu backslash justspace backslash conference to check out the recordings today. A special thanks to Vice Provost McMahon, Vice Provost Bennett, and Associate Vice Provost Blackshear for taking time to talk us through the ways in which Duke is trying to develop a much more connected living and learning environment for its students through this next-gen living learning initiative. If you would like to find out more about this work that Duke is undertaking and how it will impact you, check out NextGen duke.edu for more information. Today's episode was logistically possible because of the brilliance of Elmer Oriana, Paige Vinson, and Lindsay Miller-Furness. Our web presence is possible only because Tara McCarty makes it so. Francesca Santos and Matt Stark are the genius minds behind our assessments and analytics. To the fearless podcast team of editors and collaborators that consist of Samaya Faison, Liang Jin, Ezra Uzan Mason and Brian Lackman, as well as the Just Space Conference Chair, who is pulling double duty, Kevin Erickson, thanks. Also a special thanks to Marcy Edenfield's crew for making sure our equipment specs are just right. Just Space Conference Marketing is handled by the Illuminous Sarah Neff, and Sam Babb's keen eye keeps us all looking perfect and synchronized. Catherine Lester Bacon and Victoria Krebs ensure our online learning design is tight. As always, Jeff Nelson and Jenna McCullers are the tireless captain and first mate of the Just Space Committee. Tasha Curry-Corcoran is kind enough to ensure that the Office of Student Affairs at Duke University keeps us, the Just Space team, going one more turn around the sun. Our theme song, Yoriba, is by Lasana Debete. Engineering and mix of today's episode, like always, is by yours truly. Be sure to check back every Tuesday for the next episode. 
As always, a special non-sponsored shout-out to Zencaster for making it possible for our team to do remote recording sessions safely while in the middle of an international health crisis. Please remember to continue to wear a mask and always wash your hands. And although the vaccines are here, remember, we're not quite at the finish line. Also, be sure to get your questions answered so when it's your turn to get the shot, you can. It's been a pleasure to spend some time with you today. Can't wait to see you next week. And as always, I'm Michael Betts Second, and this has been Space of Justice. <laughs>